Welcome to Turning Final, a new podcast for those who have an interest in the aviation world. I'm Jay with my partner Matt. We'll be discussing anything and everything, whether it be informative or comedic. If you're interested in our content or keeping up with us, please give us a follow at final underscore turning on Twitter or check us out on YouTube. So how this podcast is going to work is we're going to have six segments each week detailing all the events that occurred over the last week, uh, whether they be informative or comedic, and just kind of give our hot takes, as you will, on them, uh, and just roll with it from there. Uh, so without further ado, segment one, number one goes to Matt. Take it away. All right, and with that, our first story comes to us from Bloomberg.com, where Lion Air Flight 610 is still making headlines. And for those of you that don't already know, Lion Air Flight 610 is the uh, Lion Air flight that took off from Jakarta and crashed, killing all 189 people on board shortly after takeoff. And this new data as of November 27th is now showing that the Boeing 737 MAX 8's angle of attack sensor, which measures how high or low the plane's nose was pointed relative to the oncoming air, had malfunctioned on the previous flight as well as minutes before the crash, according to the report. This this is the FAA report. The sensor erroneously concluded that the nose was pointed too high and the aircraft was in danger of losing lift, prompting a stall warning in the cockpit and triggering safety software that attempted to put them into a dive. And this is according to Bloomberg. And so because of that, uh, the pilots were not able to override this safety software. And unfortunately, the software plunged the airplane into the ocean and no one survived from it. And before I get into my reaction, I do want to point out that the co-founder of Lion Air also is furious over Boeing's attempts to blame the airline and play down uh, the critical design change of the 737 MAX in its angle of attack sensor. And it's also exploring the possibility of canceling deliveries among Lion Air's remaining 190 Boeing aircraft orders, which is worth around $22 billion at list prices. So the way I see this is that there's equal amounts of blame to go on both sides, really. First of all, I'll talk about Lion Air's blame to start. So Lion Air, um, I, I, I believe that there's a little bit of blame on their side because of the, um, the faulty angle of attack sensor. And Lion Air has been known to have some not great um, uh, maintenance records in the past. And so with this phony data or this erroneous data, um, it was reported on multiple flights before they tried to fix it um, the angle of attack sensor was replaced but it was still giving the pilots um, false data readings and obviously nothing was ever done to correct this now on the other side of the spectrum with Boeing um, this did reveal a very large issue and where Boeing did not uh, specify in the training manuals for pilots who are converting from the previous 737 models over to the max model how to uh, how to deactivate this new uh, safety software in the events that it's actually trying to um, make the aircraft crash instead of saving it. I think that's kind of interesting, um, especially since, you know, I was I read the article and apparently the two sets of pilots reacted differently. Yeah, the that's right. Error messages and malfunctions. So, like, I mean, on the previous flight, it says they were able to shut off the, the engine that was pushing the nose down, like, literally right after takeoff, which is... You know, I basically, I don't know, if you're aviation people, you, you, you probably know that, you know, to, to correct a stall, you know, you want to gain airspeed back. And to do that, you push the nose down um, to, you know, get more airflow over the wings and whatnot. But, like, right after takeoff, 
uh, pushing the nose down like that will lead to that crash. So, like, they were able to shut it off at one point um, to prevent it from doing that and crashing. But for some reason, um, this time, they didn't do that step. Um, And apparently that's a part of their emergency procedures. So I don't know if that was, you know, improper training on the behalf of Lion Air or just them being arrogant and thinking they could handle it on their own without going through the, the flows or it was just basic just overconfidence something like that i don't know i think it may actually be uh not just the airline but actually those those that set of that crew themselves that uh you know kind of messed that up for yeah them. and you do bring up a good point in where um line air not only the crew but the maintenance staff there's a lot of blame to go around here on the line air side like honestly if i'm looking at it just from a line air perspective i'd say that yeah th- i agree with what you said the crew is um has a lot of the blame but also the maintenance staff has a lot of blame they were the ones that replaced this a tangle of a angle of attack sensor yet it was still giving erroneous data and um they didn't do anything else to it and so and these pilots were reporting it too so obviously it was uh it was on record that this angle of attack center was not giving correct data and i mean anyone in the aviation industry with half a brain would know that if that's happening it could lead to false data and when autopilot reacts to false data you get stuff like this where the plane thinks it's stalling and ends up diving into the sea instead yeah, I can't. Yeah, totally agree with that. But like, also, I don't. I don't know. I've never been inside the cockpit of a of a Max, but like, they should all have standby instruments. So like, were the pilots not trained just to shut it off and like read off the standby instruments, go off of that? Because, I mean, that's kind of like day one of flight school. I mean, you literally, if your main instrument goes out, you start going to the standbys, and so that kind of just reflects poorly on the airline if they're not training their pilots well to, enough to even notice that something's off because the standby is reading something different from the main engine. Yeah, and I believe that um, there's been a couple of other uh, recorded crashes and where um, false data was being presented, or it wasn't false data, but different data was being recorded for on the captain side versus the co-pilot side, and so no one knows exactly which data is the correct one to look at. And when that happens, you make false de- or you make bad decisions based on bad data. And so I, I believe, yeah, you're you're absolutely right that um, this was largely the fault of the crew, and where um, they decided to operate the flight. While while it was known that this angle of attack sensor was giving bad data, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just it's like it's like I I think they need to update their standards as an airline first and foremost before they can go around and blame anybody else. Because yeah, it was the pilot's fault as you know because they didn't correct the issue, but like the, those every airline has their own training. So, I mean, at some, obviously what they were training didn't stick with them, so it wasn't taught properly, or they didn't teach it at all, which is an issue that really that, that really needs to be corrected. And if I were a passenger, I wouldn't ever want to fly them again, you know, based off of this, because I would literally be fearful for my life at this point if their pilots are that. And you're absolutely right. Um, going back to the Boeing side of things, Boeing did point out that um, the way to deactivate this um, safety software was written in the training manuals. Whether in, I know that it wasn't necessarily specified that it was in there and that's what everyone is so, that's why the co-founder is mad at Boeing. But uh, Boeing did write it in there and they showed that. And so the fact that Lion Air 
all the test pilots saw like they knew that that data was there they knew that there was instructions in there to shut off the system either that or they were just being ignorant and incompetent and so they did not teach this to their pilots i absolutely agree with you yeah there's just obviously a gap in communication and it wasn't it could have been from boeing to them i mean obviously i don't think boeing has to point it out that's in their manuals they should just line air every airline who has their aircraft should just read the manual it's kind of like common sense so it's like okay who didn't read the manual was it the the upper management who was supposed to be head of the training department or was it the pilots who didn't read the manuals or they just or it could have been simple as them not the pilots just forgetting or just literally not caring or it could have just been that they didn't even go through the emergency checklist is like it could have been a multitude of things and i guess we'll just have to wait um until further information comes out to kind of really solve this issue and see what really happened. Yep, I agree. And this is all based on a preliminary report. So we do not have the full story yet. We don't have all the information or all the concludings from the... Um, I do not know what the um, Aviation Administration is in Jakarta, but we need to wait for the, uh, the full report in order to get a full understanding of who's to blame here. And so once we have the full information, we can make our... Um, full decision on who's actually to blame here yeah so just stay tuned probably in a future podcast and when we get information we'll probably we'll update you all on uh the developments of this uh tragic event and with that we move on to segment number two uh screw up of the week with jay Alrighty, thank you matt um so our screw up of the week i had to dig back a little bit um but Hopefully, well not hopefully, we don't want anybody to get hurt or anything, but so Southwest Airlines overrunning the runway in Burbank, obviously, uh, maybe a lot of you have heard about it, maybe some of you ha- haven't, but, um, you know, I'm getting, coming from CNBC, who's reporting on this, um, apparently Southwest Airlines Flight 278 skidded to the end of the runway in Burbank recently, um, this report was coming on the 6th of December, so a couple weeks ago. But, you know, these things don't happen all the time, so you got to go back a little bit. Um, no air, no injuries were reported by the airline, so that's always a good thing. Um, so the plane slid into, the, into a collapsible runway. Um, at the end of the runway, there's uh, a system in place to slow aircraft down if they were to uh, overrun the runway. So these things have been thought of before. It's happened before, but uh, it happened again here recently with Southwest Airlines. Um so there were 112 passengers on board. Uh, there were no injuries, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the flight was coming from uh, Oakland to Burbank, so quite a short flight. Um, you know, even after they uh, overran the runway, the airport remained open. Um, so it really didn't cause all that much of a uh, debacle. It's just another kind of annoyance with Southwest Airlines in the in the past. And so, cause my take on this is that. Southwest needs to do a better job with their their entire airline overall. I mean, they may be good at their HR and back-end stuff, but, like, their operation is flawed. I mean, okay, so, like, you've heard recently about the, you know, the engine cowling on the on the engines kind of just, like, exploding, um, like, spontaneously combusting, if you will. Um, and, you know, where they had to land to do an emergency landing and whatnot. But, like, they're just always in the news, it, and it seems to me. It's like... Earlier in the year, they mean, and in previous years as well, they they're landing at wrong airports. Uh, so, like for example, uh, you can Google it. They there was a flight going to uh, Branson, Missouri, 
uh, and they landed at a different airport seven miles away called Clark, which is a thousand feet shorter than the minimum requirement for their 737, which just shows that their pilots aren't doing something right. I mean, even there, that's like, you know, if you're looking at your charts as you're supposed to do, as you're trained to do, obviously they weren't either trained or they just didn't care. They, I mean, they would they would realize when they look at the chart that the hey this runway is a thousand feet shorter than our you know required minimum. So this isn't a right. Maybe we should double check what airport we're actually looking at. And I understand the whole thing. It's it might be nighttime or whatever, and it's you know hard to see. But like, the check your charts. If it's a thousand feet shorter, just check what airport you're landing at and confirm cross reference that with your with your flight plan. I mean, it's kind of basic. So it, I don't know. Just it's just basically. They're in the in the news all the time, and it's not most recently them overrunning the runway in Burbank. And I think, it, it, you know, with Southwest having this whole policy, it's like, you know, their pilots need to do manual landings and whatnot, and they need to have lots of, you know, manual flight time. I mean, they sure tend to have a lot of screw-ups. I mean, over it, there's the overrunning the runway. I mean, it's, it's a minor one compared to other things that have happened that may not have been their fault. It could have been the fault of the maintenance department for the engines, but, like... You know, it's overrunning the runway. I, I don't know. I think that may, this probably pilot error, and that's just my take on it. Um, I don't know. Matt, you got anything that you think that it, it was? I would like to say that um, it's 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 honestly a little bit funny to me. Um, Southwest always ends up in the news in um, sort of the funnier ways with, um, you, know, you know, being a low-cost carrier, there's going to be uh, people who take the cheap flight, and they might not be the cleanliest of people they might have bad manners they're going to be recorded and it's going to be put on the internet but i do i would like to point out that um it was raining during this flight there was torrential downpour at um over the hollywood burbank airport and hollywood burbank airport is already an extremely hard airport to land at um, pilots have to use um, excessive braking and um if you if you screw up at all then there's going to be stuff like this that happens and so there's really no margin of error and maybe southwest's policy for manual landings should be reviewed after this because pairing a manual landing with um zero margin for error and having to land that aircraft with the rain which decreases uh the ability of your brakes to slow down your aircraft and with a really short runway maybe they should look into changing it for at least for this airports or for airports under a certain runway minimum length. Yeah, no, they definitely like if it's raining and the the conditions don't allow you to safely operate with a margin, you know, to make sure if it does not go exactly as planned, you're still good. If that margin doesn't exist and maybe you should just go to an alternate at that point at airports like Burbank especially now with southwest because it seems like it's not happening to delta or anybody who else who flies into burbank or any of these other airlines so it's like you know yeah you want to say that it's conditions but like then why aren't these other airlines in the news as much with these these kind of comical issues as southwest yeah and you know who knows maybe it had something to do with the pilot too maybe the pilot wasn't as experienced as land, uh, landing here at burbank but uh i i largely agree with you in the sense that um it's not happening to other airlines, so I think Southwest does need to review their policy on this and at least create a margin for runway length and if the pilots should be required to manually land the aircraft or let the auto land system take care of it so that the margin of error is reduced in, uh, and stuff like this doesn't happen again. Yeah, and like that kind of throws me off into a little bit of a tangent here, but like 
there's a stigma about auto land and how it's bad and it shouldn't be used because when you're a pilot you want to land the plane yourself but i mean your job is to get passengers from a to b safely and if that requires you to auto land because it's raining and you're going to burbank and a really short runway and you don't you might not think your skills are just up to par for a runway like that. There's no shame in using it. It's your job. You're getting paid to do it. And keep in mind, this is the exact situation that Autoland was designed to do, was to um, take over for the pilots in super dangerous conditions so that the pilots don't have to deal with uh, landing in, in these dangerous conditions. And the margin of error for the pilots is significantly reduced with the Autoland system. So this is exactly what it's designed for. Yeah, and like you hear all the time about like how Southwest pilots need to do manual approaches and stuff and whatnot. Like that needs to be reevaluated, in my opinion, because no, you're in, you're an airline, and your 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 main goal is to get passengers from A to B safely. And if that requires auto land, so be it. You know what? If you so you can't just have like this your ego get in the way of like you know I got to land this manually. No, if you need an auto land, do it get the passengers there, safe, there safely because guess what if they get there safely and they feel good about your airline they're going to keep coming back to your airline but like stuff like this keeps coming into the news with southwest and like when i go fly there's like southwest is the last airline i look at i only fly them if i if they're the cheapest thing out there and like if they're a hundred dollars cheaper that still may not even be enough because like i'd rather probably pay a hundred dollars more at this point after seeing all this stuff in there to fly like delta united uh or any of these other airlines and uh to, to be safe rather than you know just take a risk with like you know engine cowling blowing up because of the maintenance department or overrunning runways or even if i'm trying to fly to lax and they might accidentally land at burbank just stuff like this or even overrunning the runway like this story so i don't know southwest needs to get their stuff together in my opinion uh if they really want to uh compete with these other major airlines yeah i largely agree i think this calls for um uh re-evaluation of southwest's policies and that um things need to change because like you said earlier other airlines aren't having these issues as much as southwest is and um i think it's definitely something that their um operations department needs to look at yeah it, it's it's something they need to do they I mean take a page out of delta's book people send their aircraft to delta for them to fix even though they're they're not even delta airlines so like something's up with their maintenance department something's up with their training department and it needs to be reevaluated. and i really hope next week i don't have to my screw up of the week isn't another southwest but you know the trend is probably pretty likely all right well i really hope i don't have to talk about southwest next week in our screw up of the week uh, but with that being said, uh, here's Matt with segment number three. All right, so segment number three brings us news story number two from FlightGlobal.com, where the Embraer and Boeing agreement lays out terms of proposed joint venture. This is of uh, as of October 11th, 2018. And um, if you recall, um, the Boeing-Embraer uh, joint venture uh, states that... Um, Boeing intends to acquire 80% of Embraer's commercial aircraft division, leaving the Brazilian manufacturer with 20% of it. And at the time, Boeing's valued um, Boeing valued Embraer's commercial unit at 4.7 uh, 4.75 billion. But I believe it's got. I don't have the data with me right now, but I believe it's gone up since then. And um, what's new about this is that a couple of um, Brazilian judges tried to block this merger as of recently, but it was also um, those blocks were overruled. And I believe that now Boeing has officially stated that this merger will continue to go through. And um, Embraer says it expects a final deal will close 
or a final deal will be closed by the end of 2019. And the agreement also specifies that once it is closed, all aspects of Ember's commercial aircraft division will transfer into um, a new company. And Ember's commercial business includes all aircraft design, manufacturing, certification, and sales. And Ember's three commercial aircraft lines, including the ERJs, the E-Jets, and the E-Jets Series 2. And... Um, and this deal also specifies that Embraer will receive unspecified cash payments for five years, after which the newly formed company would distribute the shareholders 50% of its profits. And in addition to that, Embraer and Boeing also intend to sign what's called a lockup agreement. And what this is, is um, it's uh, a document saying that um, both companies are prohibited from selling the shares in the new company, which would take over uh, the Embraer stock to an uh, unaffiliated third party for at least 10 years. And uh, the deal would also include um, a put option to ensure the value of Embraer's equity stake in the new company would be protected. And that option would also enable Embraer to sell any of its shares at the same per price share uh, or per price paid by Boeing plus an inflation adjustment. And this whole deal between Embraer and Boeing, where Boeing is uh, buying the commercial division of Embraer, it's all um, a response to uh, Airbus buying out the C-Series program from Bombardier. And so uh, Boeing is trying to keep um, an even playing field in this, in where um, they would have a little bit of competition now to Airbus's um, C-Series, or I guess now it's called the A220. And so I think it's a little interesting the way Boeing responds here, because instead of just saying, oh, well, we want to buy the new E uh, the E2 series um, Embraer jets off of you guys, they are actually acquiring all the existing ERJs, the E-Jets, as well as the new E-Jets E2. Jay, do you have anything to add on this? Well, okay, so... I think it's a good thing if they want to stay competitive with Airbus. Um, I don't really want to, you know, be subjective here and, you know, just go towards one airline or not one airline, but one uh, aircraft company. But I think if they're going to be successful in this venture, they need to increase, get Embraer to increase their, you know, their E-170, 190 lines and just completely obliterate and just dissolve their E-135s and 45s. Um, those small jets, from personal experience, are just atrocious to be on. I mean, if you ask anybody, I'm sure they'd rather be on an E-170, 190. Um, they're not that much more expensive than those other aircraft. Um, I mean, I really wouldn't mind flying them all the time. So, like, if they want to compete with the, the C-Series for the Airbus, um, they need to upgrade the Embraer fleet. Um, so, and up by upgrade, they don't even need to come out with a new plane. My, my vision of upgrade is... Just get rid of, getting rid of the 145s and 135s altogether and just sticking with the 170s and 190s. Yeah, and the 135s and the 145s have been in operation for a while now. And I believe some of the smaller regional ones are starting to replace them with new uh, 175s and 195s. But I largely agree. I think the, um, the regular E-Series and the new E-Series E2 are um, definitely a better choice for airlines, especially if they're concerned with passenger comfort because the E-135s and the 145s, for those flights that are over an hour, they're really uncomfortable for people, especially with uh, the ones who are maybe a little bit taller or um, do not 
quite fit into the seat dimensions the very which i might add they're very small seat dimensions of the 135s and the 145s so yeah like yeah okay so basically like there's a flight there's flights direct to san francisco from mci my home airport um you you they don't take the 145s there but like if I'm gonna fly, you can they they t- they take the actual like 175s there and one they don't have, they don't have 190s on United but United has the direct flight so like I can stand a flight from Kansas City to San Francisco on a 170 um, no problem I have plenty of leg room even in economy or economy plus like r- rarely do I fly first class and on those kind of jets but those are easy to stand I could think I could literally be okay if their entire fleet was 170 because they're that. I don't really see a difference between an E-170 legroom and, and width and whatnot over a Boeing or an Airbus. It's literally, like, comparable, in my opinion. But, like, flying a 145, even in a 50-minute flight from Kansas City to Chicago, even if you're sitting in the, the left row where it's just a one-seat ro- one row, it's excruciating and it's terrible. My legs are cramped. You know, your head's hitting the ceiling if you're a taller person. Um... Like the aisle's so small, it's like the, the anybody has to go to the restroom. It's just terrible. So I think they're old, they're outdated, and if the airlines want to be successful, and Boeing and Embraer want to be successful in this venture, they just it's just got to go to the the one seventies and one nineties. And it yeah no if they if they keep around it the the one forty fives and one thirty fives, I think that they'll probably won't gain much ground on the uh, on the Airbus. Yeah, I think I lar- I largely agree with that. Um, I think um, Embraer has a lot of potential, or I guess I should say Boeing now has a lot of potential with this new purchase to compete with this new um, super nice, super well-received, well, now well-received C-series aircraft in which um, the 135 and the 145 really can't compete against. So I think it's largely um, wasteful for Boeing to um, put in resources and pour in money and time into the 135 and 145 series. I think they really need to focus on the new uh, their current existing 175s, 195s, and the E2 series. Yeah, and so I mean we'll monitor the developments in in this, but yeah, I don't know. It, it would be a detrimental mistake in my opinion if they were to keep them. Yep, I agree. All right, yeah. So I I really hope that um, Boeing is able to find great success with. Um, the new acquisition of Embraer's commercial line. And with that, we now go to segment number four with uh, Jay, which is his aviation outlook for 2019. Jay, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, so, yeah, basically, so you guys, right now, it's as we're recording this, it's before the New Year's, but when you're all hearing this, it's going to be a happy 2019, I hope, for everyone. Um, so, you know, with it being a brand new year, kind of wanted to discuss, you know, kind of like what is possible in 2019 just a kind of a general outlook um and you know according to simple flying um a website out there anybody can google um there's going to be some declining profitability um you know it's just cyclical in the years um you know going up and down you know with rising labor costs and whatnot um so airlines won't be as profitable so maybe be looking for some different changes that they might be making in order to boost profitability um and maybe some cuts they might be cutting out of their programs. Um, so, you know, just be on the lookout for some minute changes in, in, 20, uh, in 2019. Um, but also, declining profitability, there's probably going to be some fewer failures in terms of uh, 
airlines going bust, quote unquote, according to some flying. Um, um, you know, even with the declining profitability, there won't be as many people struggling financially. Um, you know, because that's been most uh, accredited to the instability and overhead cost. Well, you know, such as fuel prices, labor, competitive pricing, you know, trying to keep up with the other airlines. Um, but those who have made it through this winter, you know, by March, um, will probably be okay. So, basically, you know, if you can make it to March, um, you know, or through the winter, technically, somewhere around there, uh, you're probably going to be just fine for 2019 um, and be able to maintain a stable uh, a business at that point. But with also, but also coming with that, you know, we're going to have unprecedented fuel efficiency. Um, uh, you know, with all these developments in technology and whatnot, um, aircraft are becoming more fuel efficient. Just simply put, which can also reduce costs to the passenger because if the airlines are more fuel efficient with a new aircraft, um, they're going to charge passengers less because they're not spending more on fuel because they're burning less. Um, and this is largely accredited to the. Uh, Airlines investment in newer aircraft um, coming out, you know, not just sticking with the really ancient uh, aircraft. Sorry, McDonnell Douglas, MD-80s and whatnot. There are, you know, airlines that still have them and they're going to be using them for the foreseeable future. But, you know, kind of props to America and they're phasing them out, um, kind of updating their fleet a little bit, um, you know, and this helps with the fuel efficiency. So, you know, that might translate to uh, ticket prices here in 2019. So, just kind of be on the lookout for that. Um, so, you know, obviously there's Middle Eastern turbulence in politics, but we're not about politics. But those politics might also be influencing some of those, such as like Emirates or Arabian Gulf Airlines. Uh, you know, they're kind of affected by the currency fluctuations, trade tensions, and, you know, competition with others in that area. Um you know, also, but I mean, some of those airlines will continue to grow and some of them will fall with all this turbulence. So 2019 will be a year to kind of see which of those kind of Middle Eastern airlines are going to kind of rise above the others and which ones will kind of just fall off the map. You know, and I'm as a huge aviation fan, it's always terrible to see that happen. I love every airline. So, but, you know, you got to be on the lookout for it because it just is what it is. So, you know, also there's the whole Brexit thing going on in Europe. Um... So, uh, it's kind of putting a strain on outdated infrastructure. Um, so, like, the entire transportation industry over there is kind of... It, it could be kind of weird and whack in 2019. So, if you're a fan of, you know, European airlines, kind of be on the lookout for some changes going on in there, in that area of the world. So, I mean, also in 2019, uh, Amazon maybe doing some more in cargo and whatnot because you know in 2015 they had the rise of amazon prime air um trial cargo runs basically out of wilmington air park um and then in 2016 they bought 20 boeing 767s to begin freight services um um by the way their hub would be was in cincinnati um so basically they're kind of committed now to becoming a major uh player in the freight industry uh I don't know if they're going to compete with uh, UPS or FedEx, but they, they're making the push. Um, also, look forward to more biometrics and AI, um, you know, with airport security and whatnot. It's, it's like the future is biometrics. Uh, it's hard to avoid. Artificial intelligence, you know, people like it because it's quick and easy. So look, be on the lookout for more of that automated stuff. 
Um, and it's hard to say this, but like you think just when the mergers are done, you know, there's probably going to be more mergers. Um, you know, it's just hard to avoid. Some airlines do better than others. Um, and at this point, you know, there's just it's bound to happen. At least one, some couple of them are going to be merged, merged together. And, you know, you're just going to have to be on the lookout for which ones it is. I don't really think it's going to be anything in North America. Maybe, maybe not, because we, we have like three major ones here in the U.S., uh, you know, American, United, and Delta. And then we got the low-cost carriers. So, like, I don't think any of the majors are going to merge. Maybe low-cost carriers. I don't know. But if you look worldwide, there's probably going to be some mergers. So just be on the lookout for that. Also, things like basic economy, premium economy, just value of your money and just for minimal improvements. Um, you know, as many many of you may love it, many of you may hate it, but, you know, just more of those... Uh, distinctions in uh fare classes are probably going to continue to grow um so you know that's just something that's just bound to happen in 2019 because every airline is just trying to make a quick buck um and so basically and then like the rewards programs are going to obviously change every year for every airline you know to earn your status and whatnot so if you're interested in that stuff and you travel a lot just make sure you check the uh the fine print uh, before you venture into committing to one airline to try to earn status with them. And so, I guess, after seeing all this stuff in the articles and whatnot, I guess my biggest take out of it is, like, I'm not really buying the whole, uh, you know, the whole thing with, like, basic economy and value for your money, you know, just the whole more of a segregation, if you will, of uh, fare classes. I mean, you know, it's like... It's great for the airlines, but not too many people actually enjoy it, you know, flying them. So, I don't think that's going to really continue to expand, but it could. I don't know. I hope it doesn't because it just, it just makes it harder for everybody else. Because the more basic economy flyers you have, it just takes seats away from people who are going to fly regular economy and people who are going to try to fly economy plus or whatever you call it for whatever airline you're in. Um, so, I don't know. The airlines probably want to do it, but I don't think the passengers do. And since they're driven by passengers, I don't think they're going to really do it. But only time will tell there. Um, and the one thing I'm really buying out of this is the fuel efficiency. Um, yeah, the new aircraft are so much more fuel efficient than the older aircraft. It's insane. And, you know, having flown aircraft myself, fuel prices dictate where you fly and how much you fly. So... With the ability of aircraft to be so much more fuel efficient, we should see a reflection in the prices of tickets to places because the airlines can afford it to make it cheaper now. And the cheaper they are, the more passengers they may carry, so they may end up seeing a profit even over what they've had in the previous years because of it. But that's just my take. I don't know. Matt, do you have anything? Um, well, yeah, I, I think I have to largely agree with the article and what you said. Um, 2019 is going to be um a good in in general terms it's going to be a good year for flying um everything i don't, I don't want to go over to like be repetitive of what you've already said but with the new aircraft coming out increased fuel efficiency and the mergers that are creating stronger airlines and um uh i i, I think i have to largely agree with the fact that um it's going to be better for passengers and um fares are um, most likely going to be going down as a result of it as well. And, um, I guess I'll take my, I'll put my two cents in on the, um, the basic economy fares too. I largely think that, um, 
the reason why airlines are doing these um, economy, like these basic economy fares, is because they're realizing they can pack. Like, they, you know, it, it's largely known that they know that they can pack these airplanes if they um, if they make it affordable to people who just want to travel, who would normally travel by car maybe instead of plane, but now are able to afford um, traveling by plane. But I largely agree. I think. Um, I think even though it may be profitable for the airlines, it largely takes away from um, a good passenger experience, which is unfortunately something that airlines aren't necessarily concerned with. But it is an important perspective to take into account because passenger uh, retention is should be um, extremely important for airlines. And this does have to do with passenger retention and the fact that if you... Um, we're planning on buying, like you said, if you plan, we're planning on buying a regular economy or an economy plus seat, but then um, the airline decides to uh, replace the cabin with um, basic economy class, then you're losing out on that experience. And then even if the you do buy um, an economy, a basic economy seat, and it's not what you're expecting, and you think to yourself, why did I do this? I'm not going to pay money to go on this airline again. It may be... Um, it may be worth looking at for the airlines in terms of passenger in terms of a passenger retention standpoint into maybe um, on some select uh, flights where it's not as full as some of the other ones um, maybe don't put as many econ basic economy seats and rather fill it with um, regular economy or uh, premium economy yeah I don't know it just to me it's like they need to slow the roll with that because yeah, they're they're attracting the. I mean, I think they're doing it to compete with the low cost carriers. I'm like, you're not a low cost carrier. Just stick with what you're good at, and that's just fine. You don't have to be Southwest Airlines or JetBlue if you're United. It's just fine being United Airlines. Okay, people who want your services will pay for it, and you'll guess what? You'll still be overbooked on flights. I mean, you were overbooked on flights, and people were volunteering to give up their seat before all this basic economy stuff. So you don't need to compete with Southwest. It's just some of the market you don't need to get into, in my opinion. Yeah, and um, I largely, and that brings up a good point. Um, these markets are somewhat separated. Um, United does not have to get into the same exact market that Southwest is. What they're is which what they're trying to do with this basic economy fair. They are separate markets, and there is. Um, a good amount of passenger base for each market so i know this tends to be more profitable for uh airlines but maybe it would boost other aspects of the airline if they were to um not venture into these new markets to where it decreases the overall passenger experience and um provides less um premium cabins and replacing it with these basic economy cabins yeah, I mean, if you want to look at it this way, like maybe you increase the cost of first class, but you keep the cost of main economy the same. I don't know. You fix it that way if you have to do it. But like, I don't think these mainline air, you know, airlines, the big three in the U.S. need to do it. It's just kind of, it's kind of yeah, just and dumbfounding. It, especially, me. especially with um, lower costs coming in 2019 with these newer aircraft. Um, the triple seven X is coming out, and a couple of airlines will be receiving those. So they'll end up saving money anyways, which can be put into um, putting less basic economy seats in, and rather um, switching it out for uh, regular economy or even uh, premium economy. Yeah, and we'll keep you updated on the developments of this nonsense throughout the the year of twenty nineteen, and you'll probably hear a lot of me ranting on it because I really dislike it. 
Um, I mean, I'm pro- I've probably I've flown Southwest and all that, so I understand it. But for the main three, I don't get it. I don't think it's what they should be doing. So just just stay tuned for it. Yeah, and I largely think this is an experiment that the airlines are trying to conduct in that um, in the short term, it is going to be more profitable, but we really have to wait to get into 2019 to see if this is going to stick or if they decide that uh, basic economy is not the best way to go. Yeah, and, you know, these are just projections by a, you know, a group online, you know, obviously they've done their research and this is what they think, but we don't know what's going to happen until it actually happens, so stay tuned. Yeah, so it's 2019 shaping up to be an interesting year, to say the least. But uh, we're going to move on to the next segment, and uh, here's Matt. All right, so our next segment is um, our third story that comes from Airways Magazines of Brussels Airlines um, Flight uh, 358 that was performing a flight from uh, Kinshasa to Brussels in which uh, the A330 suffered dual engine failure. And what's funny about this is that it wasn't at the same time. So initially over algerian airspace the the a380 experienced the number one engine failure but upon um being able to reignite the engine the pilots decided to continue um their journey to belgium and so uh they're continuing across the mediterranean sea and once they got to french airspace the next engine the engine number two also flamed out and so they had number one restarted but number two had flamed out and so um I don't know why, but the pilots decided to go to or t- to continue through French airspace to Belgium, and uh, the flight landed safely. No injuries were reported, but it's believed um, it's believed that uh, one of the causes of this might be due to uh, fuel contamination. But this uh, there's been no report released yet. This is pretty recent, um, as of last two weeks ago, maybe. But luckily. Like I said, no injuries reported. All 306 people on board uh, were fine, and uh, the cause, the true cause of the investigation, is look, being looked into as we speak. So, like, I think this is just another instance instance of just terrible maintenance, uh, along with I don't know pilot error. I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> I say I, I've, I largely have to agree. We just I know we just completely talked about how. 2019 is going to be better due to better safety and that um, safety the newer planes um, have incredible safety records and that these airlines are having less and less crashes but this is definitely an instance that does not help that claim I mean it's first of all I just I can't get to the bottom of why um, the pilots didn't decide to divert to somewhere in France or maybe Italy and s- instead continue to Belgium because their number two engine was out and they were only running on engine number one, which was already known to be having issues because that's the one that um, failed over Algerian airspace. So I don't have no idea why they took that risk. Honestly, I think it was kind of dumb of them. And then to say the least for um, the mechanics of this flight, and maybe this goes for um, Brussels Airways, um, maintenance overall but dual engine failure in a single flight is one of the most uncommon events that an airplane can experience in flight and so I think this largely speaks to um, bad practice um, just like the uh, the Lion Air flight and their maintenance I think this just speaks to really bad maybe um, cutting corners practices that these um, these lesser known companies uh, maintenance departments are taking yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, the only, excuse, you know, there's, there's excusable dual engine failures, you know, obviously one was 
uh, Sullenberger on the Hudson, you know, obviously dual bird strike. Okay, so like the, you know that's understandable, and you know like that's that's all cool, not cool, but you know what I mean. But like so. I mean, like, okay, so, like, yeah, it's this terrible resource management, you know, CRM, crew, res- crew resource management by the pilots, I think, and I think it's, 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 it starts at the top, so, I mean, you gotta blame everybody, I, you know, I mean, you, yes, it's the pilot's fault, because they didn't do what they were supposed to do, um, but also, I mean, who hired them, who was supposed to train them, okay, so it, it starts at the top, and they, they need to be held responsible as well, and the entire airline needs to get themselves in check moving forward, and they, as with the line air thing earlier, it's like, if I were living over there, I wouldn't want to fly them, because of stuff like this, it is just, it's not like they couldn't help it, I mean, yeah, obviously things happen and stuff, but it's like, their practices after it happened were atrocious, and so, I wouldn't feel confident if I were on a plane like that and something happened that they would handle it the right way from here on out. So they need to fix their own reputation like ASAP. And so, I mean, that starts by implementing better practices. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point. If it turns out that uh, the cause of this was due to um, faulty maintenance, then that largely has to do with um, that. That means that the blame is um, going around everywhere within the airline. Um all the way from executive management to training to the pilots themselves to the maintenance department because like you said whoever trained those pilots um maybe there's a reason behind it but i honestly just cannot for the life of me see why they continue to belgium i think that's an absolute uh, absurd risk to take and completely unnecessary there's plenty of airports in the south of france and the western part of italy that they could have diverted to and especially knowing that they were only operating on the engine that had already flamed out i just i can't understand why maybe the pilots were um, trained to continue i just i don't know and whatever the case is though um it's just bad practice to go all around yeah i don't know coming from a flight school background like you learn crm career resource management and you you gotta you gotta know better than that like if student pilots are learning that in the in a school in the middle of nowhere in the united states i mean people at major airlines like that they need to know better it's it's just so unacceptable and it makes you look so bad i don't know it's just no to continue on like like i don't what are the pilots thinking it's like no they and they airlines need to reevaluate who they're hiring and their line check process to make sure they're still doing their job once they're hired because it's completely unacceptable to have keep seeing this stuff in the news from every other airline that's known to man basically i mean and you know it's, yeah who knows maybe brussels all their mission is to just get to the destination whether it's not safely or not on time just get to this i i don't know but like you said, this is largely just unacceptable. And unless they can provide, which I highly doubt they'll be able to, unless they can provide a really good answer to this question, then I think this speaks to very bad training and malpractice by this airline. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, bad training and malpractice too. I mean, that starts at the top. Who's hiring these people who are supposed to be training these people, uh, these pilots? And it's like, okay, they're not. Nobody's doing their job. You know, starting at the top and working with all down the bottom. See, the pilots have that attitude because their their superiors have that attitude and so that just trickles all the way to the top and it's just bad management and i think the airline industry's kind of kind of got great yeah, thing in that respect like all these other airlines it's happening to them all and it's like you know i don't want to brag but it seems like 
the airlines in the United States don't have as many of these kind these kind of pro- crew problems as do these uh, these other airlines you know from other countries. So and just like uh, aircraft accidents, it's always a chain link events or a series of events that leads to this issue. So uh, if we apply it to the operations and the department side, uh, it's whoever um, you know came up with these rules and procedures. If um, it was policy to continue to Belgium, it's whoever. Um, decided to hire these pilots maybe um, they had a history of bad judgment or it's whoever came up with the training policies to where maybe these policies are really not the best way to deal with certain types of emergency situations like this yeah i don't know i think it'd be fun and interesting to do an audit on all these airlines and see what's really going on and inside their operations because something's flawed and it's showing because you know, all these, just, it just keeps happening, and it's kind of tiresome to, to hear about. It's so unfortunate for the people that are affected by it and their families, and, like, these everyone's got to realize that, you know, they're not just, like, you know, a crash. It, it, it affects people's lives. It takes, you know, people pass away from this stuff. It affects their families, so it's not just, like, they're losing money because their aircraft crashed. No, they're affecting people, and it needs to stop. Yeah, I largely agree. Yeah, so, you know, we'll see. We'll keep monitoring it, but we'll see what 2019 has to offer. And so with all that being said, that brings us to segment number six with Jay, things we like and things we hate. All right, thanks, Matt. So basically this week, there's a couple things I like and a lot of things I really just dislike. You know, it it might be skewed, but we'll we'll have to see where this this goes. But so the first thing is I still hate low-cost carriers. You know, I know everybody has their opinion on them, Southwest, you know, Allegiant Spirit and whatnot. But to me, if I'm going to fly somewhere, I'm going to go on the mainline aircraft all day, every day. I don't know. It's something about walking on to a Southwest aircraft and not having a fare class at all and just being jammed in there with every other passenger who wants to fly cheaply somewhere. Like, I live in Kansas City, so like flying to L.A., I was recently on a flight where I was jammed in between a mom, a newborn baby, and a infant, basically, who was like one year old. So, crying the entire way, which is like three and a half hours. Um, but that's what you get on low-cost carriers because it's cheap and families love to use it. Um, I hate them because I'd rather pay that extra $100, $200 and fly with an assigned seat. One, sorry, Southwest. Um, yeah, so it's just like I, no, I just can't, I just can't stand them. Yes, they're low cost, but what are you giving up? You know, for that low cost, you're giving up convenience. You're giving up, you know, legroom, headspace, overhead space because there's just a boatload of bags on those planes. It's just annoying to me. I, I just can't stand them though. Although I've never flown JetBlue, so I can't speak for them. But all the other ones I have, I just know. Allegiant, sorry, you're not very good. Spirit, uh, <laughs> no, sorry, bye. I mean, the best one of them all, I think, is probably Southwest. Haven't flown JetBlue, as I said, so I can't speak for them. But no, I'm, I just can't do it. I'm sorry, you got to improve the way you, your 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 plans are laid out. But they probably won't because they're low cost and that's their their shtick. So, you know, it, I'll just probably never be a low cost thing. So that's thing number one I do not like. Um. Number th- two thing I do not like, as discussed earlier a little bit, was is the whole basic economy development. I hate it. I mean, it's stupid to me. It's like, why get rid of just why add something to regular economy? What's after? What's next though? Like, basic basic economy? No, it's it's no, it's insane to me. Um, 
No, like then the people who buy basic economy get PO'd when they go to the counter and say, why don't I have an assigned seat or why can't I bring this other bag with me? They, they expect privileges of regular economy and first class when they bought basic economy knowingly and willingly. And that's that really peeves me. Um, that it's, it's annoying. And the airlines are doing it because they want just to carry more passengers. And guess, guess who is getting kicked off those flights when they overbook? It's not the basic economy people because guess what? Those people bought it because they just they need, they need to get where they're going and it's cheap and whatnot. They really want to go. They're going. The people who are getting kicked off are the people who are in regular economy and whatnot. I mean, it's 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 insane. So I mean, you're overselling planes, but because basic economy basically now more. So I mean, no, it it, it just doesn't work like that to me. And it, I think it's a dumb idea that they should get rid of. They, as I mentioned earlier in in this podcast, is no, you don't need to compete with the Southwests and Allegiance and Spirits, and you know, create all these little low cost concepts because you're not a low cost carrier. If you're a low-cost carrier, go for it all day long, but you're not. So stop trying to be Southwest United, American Delta. You don't need to do it. And it's kind of really disappointing to see that they're going into that and kind of going away from what made them them in the first place. Um, you know, I, I I just don't like it. I mean, the only positive thing I have to say is if that if it helps them survive as an airline, that's a good thing, I guess. Maybe. I mean, no, I, I don't like it, but I mean, I just want them to be around still, but... It's it's something I just really don't like. I, I can't stand it. Um, the next thing I really don't like is it's not an airline issue. It's a TSA issue. It's what do you fly from different airports? If your hotel kicks you out at noon and your flight's not till ten o'clock at night because you were being cheap, sorry. I mean, or if your business books you a flight at ten o'clock at night and that's the only one they can get you, and your hotel kicks you out at noon, you were ten hours early. But guess what? You can only check your bag in six hours early, so you literally have four hours of doing nothing but sitting around either on the curb of the airport, on a bench, or you're sitting inside at security checkpoint for four hours just on your phone, just just wasting your time away. Um, and then you can't even expect that same time every airport you go, because in Atlanta, I know it's like six hours, six to eight hours. Um, you go to LaGuardia in New York, it's four hours. So if you're from Atlanta and you go to New York with that same expectation of, oh, I can come like six to eight hours early and check my bag and it'll be fine. No, no, you're going to be there two to four hours too early in LaGuardia and you're going to be sitting around in New York LaGuardia airport's check-in area with nothing to do. Their terminals are terrible in LaGuardia. Just imagine having to sit around in their, in their uh, check-in area for two to four hours. That's insane. So I think TSA needs to get their stuff together, and they need to have a universal check-in time across every airport. I think that's kind of ridiculous. Um, there's nothing really I like about that. Sorry, I, I can't I can't say anything good about that policy. But it is what it is, and I don't think it's going to change, unfortunately, um, because you know TSA is TSA. Um, and the final thing I have this week, there's some things I, I like, I love about it, and a lot of things I don't like about it right now. The whole clear initiative and biometrics thing, um, I think it's a great thing. It's It quickens the process up. Um, it makes it easier to verify somebody because nobody has the exact same fingerprints or retina that you do. So, you know, fake IDs, you know, I don't know how well those machines and the TSA agents actually are checking them. So I've gone to places where they literally just look at it like they don't even scan it like... They should probably be fired for that, but they've done it. 
So I think it's more of a reliable way to go through security. This whole new, you know, this company called Clear and their biometrics initiative. Um, but the one thing I really don't like about it is they're costing, an, it costs an arm and a leg, basically. You pay so much to get this stuff. And so basically those who have it are elite. And everybody else is stuck in regular TSA lines and stuff. Like, don't you want everybody to be just as safe and, you know, background checked and whatnot? So, like, if this is providing your biometrics that's hard to replicate with anybody else, I mean, you should probably offer this to everyone for free. I don't know. They can make revenue off of other things rather than just charging for that service. I think they should sell that technology to maybe the government or the airport's. That's how they can make their money and charge a fee every month for the airports of having it and give it to the passengers for free. I don't know. But charging passengers to use it, there's basically only a few people who go it. Like now the TSA pre-check line in Atlanta International Airport is insane. It's like well, there's no benefit of having pre-check in Atlanta anymore because it just takes just as long as the regular line. But then you have like five to ten people in the clear line who are going just going right through. But if everybody have it, yeah, it might make the lines a little bit e longer, but they'd probably be even, and it'd be safer anyway. So maybe you should just start offering it to people for free. I don't know. It's a great technology, but the way it's been implemented is terrible. But yeah, anyway, it's just those are the things I kind of like. There weren't that many of them. There's some aspects of them I like, but a lot of the things this week I just really dislike, and I'll probably you'll probably hear about it a lot more throughout the year of 2019. Um because it just really grinds my gears. Um, and things need to be changed to make it just a smoother process throughout the, the airport and on the airplane itself. But, uh, yeah, until next week, those are the things I like and hate. So that's going to conclude the first recording of Turning Final. Make sure to join us next time for all the latest on what's happening with aviation. And make sure to go leave us feedback on all of our social media. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook at final underscore turning.